each of you, I'd ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And our text today will be verses 32 to 52, spending primarily most of our time on the first 10 verses, the account of Jesus and Gethsemane. Um, As we mentioned the previous weeks, the main theme of Mark 14 is one of betrayal and abandonment, and that theme continues to display itself in our text today. Following the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately is alone there as his disciples cannot, cannot stay awake with him. As we will see, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus great internal suffering, perhaps more intense suffering than physically with his body and the crucifixion on the cross. Today's text is very profound. It's as though we're on holy ground. It's, it's, it's as though somehow we have a, an NSA phone tap type of thing and we can hear, we can peer in and listen to the very words and cries of Jesus to his Father. The depth of the agony and distress of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is unmatched. In some ways, it's unfathomable for us to fully grasp this. There's mystery. These are deep waters. And no doubt, ultimately, the prospect of Jesus taking all of God's wrath for all the sins of the elect upon him caused him great agony. And and, and when that would happen on the cross just hours later from our text, there would not be one drop of mercy, one drop of grace given to him, but it would be undiluted wrath poured out upon his own son. And Jesus knows that is his destiny. He knows that is the fulfillment of his mission. And here, just hours before, he is praying to his father. Let's read the text, beginning in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground. And he began to pray. If it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We'll read the next section when we get to it towards the end of the sermon, but let's pray. Father in heaven, we 
our hearts tremble as we consider this text, as we consider the depth of the agony that our Savior has gone through. Lord, we pray that You would give us understanding, that You'd give us a, a, a great, uh, clearer picture of who Jesus Christ is and His character and His personality. Oh Lord, and His devotion, His obedience to fulfill the will of the Father. Lord, we pray that You would open our ears to hear. Give us understanding. Send the Holy Spirit, O God, upon each one here and upon the one speaking, that You might be glorified in the proclamation of Your Word. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. You remember last time we considered the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper And on bookends of that, there was the betrayal of Judas, right? The the predicted betrayal. And Jesus says it would be better for him if he had not been born. Then, after the institution, Jesus predicts that you will all fall away from me. And then sandwiched in the middle, of course, is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus makes it very clear, since this happened on Passover night, as they had just ate the Passover lamb, that He now is our Passover. He is the one that has fulfilled all of that. We looked at the liturgy of the Passover feast and how this occurred between the second and third cup. And and so I would encourage you, if you you weren't not here, to try to get a copy of that download on the Internet and listen to it as we discuss differing views of the Lord's Supper. A very important message that we'd like at least the members of this church to hear. So today as we come, as we have the unique ability to, as it were, spy into the Garden of Gethsemane, to bend our ear, as it were, to, the, to, the, to the, the edge of the garden and to listen to the words that are being said. Why all this agony, we might ask? Why all this wrestling and prayer at Gethsemane? Why the intensity of the agony? What, what's, what's it all for? One of the things is to establish for all time that his obedience was not forced. He voluntarily went to the cross to die for our sins. It was from a wholehearted obedience to the Father's will that he laid down his life for his people. We will see the weight of the emotional stress of our Lord, the intense suffering that he endured. And and, and in a sense, Gethsemane is a prelude to Calvary. Here, his very soul is crucified in agony before his father, and on Calvary, his very body would be crucified just hours later. So let's look at verses 32 to 35. The title of the message is Agony and Arrest. And our first point is Anguish and Affliction. Jesus faces this crisis utterly alone. Now, it says that they went to Gethsemane. Luke the, the parallel in Luke, we read John, and, and then there's a parallel in Matthew. We'll be comparing those. But it says that it, it was his custom to go here. You remember, they would go to the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane was likely at the lower end of the Mount of Olives. It, it, it means olive press. And so there were very large olive trees there, and there would be an olive press there as well. And there's a garden of flowers. Um, most describe it as that. And so they go there. And it's evidence across the Kidron Valley, and, and this is a place where Jesus would go often. They were familiar with this. The disciples were. It's probably about midnight. Remember, the, all the preparations for Passover had gone into that. They've had the Passover feast. 
which usually took several hours of recounting God's faithfulness in delivering Egypt and then the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, and, and this feast had to take place between 6 p.m. And, or sun, sunset and midnight. Food had to be consumed, so it could be after midnight. Some commentators think it's around midnight. It's late. It's a chilly night in Palestine. It's in April. It's cold by this time, and it's dark. And so that's the setting that we have. Only two other times does it tell us, and if you look here where it says, he tells all the disciples near the front, sit here until I have prayed. The only, there's other, only two other times, and the first was in chapter 1, after preaching in Galilee, that, that after praying, he comes and he declares, we must go to other cities to proclaim the word of God. And then again in chapter 6, always significant events. And then you see in verse 33 that he took with him Peter, James, and John. The inner circle. The inner circle that, that was privileged to be able to witness several things. And remember when Jairus' daughter was raised in chapter 5, it was these three that were permitted to go into the room as Jesus raised her from the dead. It is these three that get to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus transfigured before them. And yet, it is these three, though all these extra privileges and probably some, some that aren't recorded, that seem to be the most proud. <laughs> James and John in chapter 10 ask to sit at the right and the left of Jesus, right? So they're presuming, and it made the other disciples uh, very angry. Peter himself says, just if you look up in verse 29, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. And then verse 31, Peter kept saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. So again, uh, you, you have the, the example there of Peter putting his foot in his mouth as he often did. So picture the Garden of Gethsemane near the outer. It was either surrounded by a stone wall or a fence. Um, we don't know exactly. We don't have a real picture of it. There's lots of art that's been done. Um, but so the disciples are by the entrance. He takes the inner three in, in the the garden some distance, and that's the context of that. And then look at what it says. He began to be very distressed. In a very real way, as he entered that garden on that evening, just hours before going to the cross, it is as though, as though hell came to him with much force. Just as it would on Golgotha, as, as the father would turn his presence and alienate his own son as he pours out his wrath upon his own son. It's in a sense, this is a prelude to that cry of dereliction in, in chapter 15. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Reminds me of Job when he says, the terror of God is against me. The urgency of Jesus' words are underscored by this horror of what lies ahead. The Greek terms are pretty fascinating here, and so it's, it's, it's worth mentioning. The word that's translated distress in the New American Standard means to be moved to a relatively intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise or perplexity. It can mean to be filled with horror. The second term, troubled, means to have anxiety 
uh, intense anxiety. It's only used by Matthew and Mark. And then once in Philippians 2, if you're familiar with the story about Epaphroditus, when the Philippians heard that he was sick and was praying earnestly, he, being restored, was distressed for them because they were thinking that he was sick, but the Lord had made him well. So troubled, anxiety, such anguish, such anguish, the billows of distress have now filled our Savior's soul. Is that not what we see in Psalm 42 that we read? Deep calls to deep at the sounds of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. And then a couple verses earlier, actually three times in those two Psalms. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Several Psalms, Psalm 18, Psalm 22, that, that point to this. The cords of death encompass me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. So this dreadful sorrow and anxiety that prompted the prayer that which we're about to unpack is not out of fear for his destiny. Okay? It's not because he's fearing his destiny in any way, shape, or form. Or it is not because of his fear of actual physical suffering on the cross, of having the nails driven through his wrist and into his feet. It was not out of fear. Rather, it was the horror of being alienated from his father while taking the payment, the just wrath against sin. Picture the Trinity and eternity past, sweet, full, complete fellowship of the Trinity, and yet in the covenant of redemption, the Trinity plans to send the Son to be the Savior of the world, that there would be a world created, that, that Adam would fall and that he would be the Savior. And so he comes and he incarnates and he's the God-man. He's both 100% God, 100% man. And now it is drawing near to just hours away when he will be on the cross to make that payment of which was planned before the foundation of the world. That substitute had to be a sinless one. He had to be perfect. Just like that Passover lamb, you don't get the runt that's one year old and slaughter that for the Passover feast. You get the one that is the most pristine, the one that has your affection, the one that you would least want to give up and to slaughter and to eat. Well, so too Christ had to be sinless to be a suitable substitute to stand in your place and mine because we are wretched sinners. We have fallen in Adam. Our nature is already corrupt in Adam. But, but then we're sinners by practice too. If we look at our lives and we're honest with ourselves, we break God's law all the time. We are full of sin. But we have a wonderful Savior that stood in our place. Jesus comes to the Father for a time of comfort before His betrayal. But he finds the very terrors of hell around him. You see, it's one thing to stand before a holy God and to answer for one person's sins. Can you imagine the gravity of, of, of answering to all of the elect's sins in, in their totality? Every sin, malice, evil of all of God's people. No wonder it says in Psalm 22 that I, I think Jesus is feeling this. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. 
And the text goes on to say in verse 34 that my soul is deeply grieved. If you didn't get distressed and you didn't get troubled, he, he makes it very clear. He said to them, to the inner circle, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here with me and watch. That inner circle that no doubt was a bit closer to Jesus, the privileged situations of which we mentioned, he asked them to watch with him. This is an hour of terror. This is, this is a time of which everything's coming to fulfillment and to reality. He knew that he would be the sin bearer that would take away the curse of the law. He knew that as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He knew that he was going to have all of our sins imputed to his account as he took and satisfied God's just wrath against sin. There has been no death like this death. This death is something that turned the world upside down. But he was despised. He was rejected of men. Jesus prays to the Father and resolves to submit to his will. The agony intensifies in verse 35. It says, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray if it were possible that the hour might pass him by. Luke tells us it was about a stone's throw away. Well, you could throw a stone probably 100 feet, some men, um, but it's probably something like from here to the back of the room, you know, 30, 40 feet away or something like that. It was in, it was in close enough proximity to where before they slumbered, they could recall the very words that Jesus is saying. Oh, by the way, the critics say, well, wait a minute, how do we know what he really prayed if, if they're sleeping? Like, who, who provided that for us? You can't trust the account of Gethsemane. I absolutely despise that line of liberal thinking. <laughs> Do you think they fell asleep like that? <laughs> it's probably after a few moments they heard something of the prayer. By the way, where it says that he fell to the ground, it, it carries the connotation of collapsing or throwing himself on the ground. It's very powerful. He asked, if it's possible, let this hour pass him by. He goes on in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The idea of this hour and this cup are synonymous here. They, 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 mean, they point to the same thing. They are clear metaphors for the impending passion resulting in the redemption of God's people. This is not a resignation of the Son of God. I've come this far, Father. I don't want to go anymore. Give me the, give me the, back, give me the keys to the back door. I'm out of here. No, it's not that at all. But it shows His humility and His obedience. He uses the word Abba. You know, an easy way to translate that is daddy. Turn of endearment, tenderness, 
sweetness, intimacy, trust. Abba, Father, Daddy. Abba provides crystal clarity into the, the, the mind of our Lord that He knew He was the Son of Almighty God, that He was the Son of God. Now the cup, of course, is a metaphor for a portion. Uh, Psalm 16 speaks of that. But here it is a metaphor of the wrath of God. In Isaiah 51 and verse 17, it talks about a cup of God's anger, a chalice of reeling. In Psalm 75, probably the clearest um, one we have, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. That's the cup that the wicked will drink. Well, here is a cup, a portion that Jesus will take. He will drink. And that's making payment for all of God's people. He asked this, if it's possible to let this cup pass. Perhaps just as Abraham had the sword above Isaac and, and the Lord provided a ram in the thicket, just as he was about to slay his son, maybe the father has some other way. Maybe there's some other way. If it be possible, let this cup pass, yet not as I will, your will be done. He is resigned, resolved rather, to obey his Father. He is determined to take that chalice of death and to drink down the final dregs of it for all of God's elect. He became a propitiation for sin, that, that big word that the modern translations like to take out, but it's a word worth leaving in because it speaks of Jesus satisfying the wrath of God. That the Father expended all of His wrath until it was completely satisfied. He is the propitiation for our sin. Jesus' prayer highlights the terrible suffering He had to endure in agony, much more magnified because He had to take the sins of all of God's people. Hebrews chapter 5 is a very good text. You should write it in the margin of your Bible if you... Don't think that's wrong, but it really fits here. Listen, Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Loud crying and tears. Father. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Now, some also argue that, well, he's just trying to get sympathy from the three friends, the inner circle. Look, they, 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 they hadn't fully grasped what it means that he was going to be killed and crucified and betrayed. Remember, I mean, he was told, they were all told in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, um, right, it's the institution of Lord's Supper. It's not as though they're like, I get it now, you know. It, it, they, they didn't understand. Now there is a sense of which is humanity to want companionship from one's closest friends is, is normal and that shows a measure of humanity. But here he's concerned for them that they not enter temptation. 
Luke also um, doesn't record the, the three times of the coming of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment here, but he does add some important details. And, and these things are not in the earliest manuscripts, these two verses, Luke 22, 43 to 44, but most scholars accept it as being valid. It says in Luke 22, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Now, isn't that marvelous? And then I, I can see that because if we, when, by the time we get down to verse 41 and 42, you'll see that he is resolute to go and to confront his betrayers. He's been strengthened. He's been, the, the agony is past. But then it goes on to say, speaking of the agony, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. There was such internal turmoil and intensity and agony that blood vessels were beginning to pop near the pores of the skin so that the blood would become mingled with the sweat and would, would drop out. The word for agony occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. Listen to this word. It describes the climax of a mysterious soul conflict and unspeakable suffering. It means to drive or to lead, as in a chariot race. The root idea is the struggle and pain of the severest athletic contest or conflict. That's the idea, that's the underlying word, this word for agony here in Luke 22:44. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon preached, obviously, hundreds of years ago, makes this observation. The word rendered great drops in the original Greek, which properly signifies lumps or clots, for we may suppose that the blood that was pressed out through the pores of the skin by the violence of the inward struggle and conflict that there was that when it became exposed to the cool air at night, that it congealed and stiffened. And as is the nature of blood, so it fell from him, not so much in drops, but in clots. Reality is, we don't have a video of it, but I think it communicates one very important thing. This was very intense. This was a time of incredible agony that we will never know in this life. So, anguish and affliction. Verse 32 to 36. Now consider forsaken at Satan's hour. Verses 37 to 42. Beginning in verse 37, there's a major shift. A shift from a focus off of Jesus' prayers and now on the disciples. And we must be vigilant and not be not slumber spiritually. The spiritual danger of this hour is not limited to Jesus, but it's also to the disciples. And Jesus comes the first time, and, and look at it in verse 37. And then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, first of all, there's three of them, right? James, John, and Peter. But he points out Peter. And it says he came to Peter, but then what did he call him? Simon, his old name, before he took the name Peter Rock, he wasn't being a rock right here. He was being weak and, and, and weary and sleeping. And so Jesus addresses him as Simon. I think he addresses him first as well because he thought to be the spokesman for the disciples. But he addresses him. 
Keep watch. Hey, Peter, I'm not asking you to stay up for three days. I'm not asking you to shed your own blood. I'm asking you to watch for one hour. Can you not watch? And then he gives the imperative, verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. To, be, to enter into temptation means to not be ensnared by it. Jesus addresses the three of them with this, as it's plural in verse 38. You three keep watching and praying. Here is a crisis of their character to be vigilant lest they enter temptation. You see them slumbering. They're slumbering spiritually. It says in verse 39, And he went away again and prayed the same words, and he came again and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. This is amazing. Think of this huge typhoon that just swept through the Philippines. Some 10,000, probably much more than 10,000, dead. Now, of course, that was being predicted. And could you imagine being on the beach there in, in a lounge chair and enjoy soaking up the sun before the storm got close and just slumbering spiritually, slumbering, and not making preparations to protect your family, to get to higher ground, to, to protect your belongings. But just there, and then suddenly, temptation comes, and, and you're taken away. It's a crisis of character. We must be vigilant. The idea of the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. The flesh speaks to one's human nature. The, the spirit speaks to that invisible um, identity, your soul, of who you are before God. And so, yet again, their drowsiness gains the victory over their desire to stay alert. Mark alone adds this little phrase. You see it there in verse 40? For their eyes were very heavy. Isn't that interesting? Their eyes were very heavy. And you might think of it as a, the, the, the terminology that's used there is like a pack mule mule like overloaded so that it's over it's overly heavy so it can hardly walk or you might picture like little dumbbells hanging on on their eyelids you know so that their eyes just kept wanting to close and hebrews 12 verse 3 were to consider him and to not grow weary jesus is not concerned about his own well-being he's concerned for his disciples at this point Jesus boldly comes to his betrayers, verse 41 and 42. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Again he went in verse 41, and finds them sleeping a third time. Now, the, the way this is phrased here, well, actually, where it says, uh, they did not know what to say to him, that's in verse 40. That's actually the exact same grammar that's used in the Mount of Transfiguration when they were stunned. It means bewildered. But they're told to watch, and instead they slumber and sleep. Now think about it. These disciples have made all the preparations for Passover. They've gone ahead. They've worked very hard that day. We don't know all that was involved, but there was a feasting, a large meal, and several glasses of wine. And this is about midnight. It would be quite natural and normal to be getting very sleepy around this time, wouldn't it? 
I think it's, there's also an irony here that three times Jesus comes and finds them sleeping, and just hours later, Peter will deny Jesus three times as well. Now, as far as how this is phrased, are you still sleeping or resting? There's a, there's a lot of debate in the commentaries as far as what's the right translation of that. It's probably meant to be a reproach or a rebuke of some sort. Um, but there's others that would say it means sleep on now, take your rest, uh, indicating that the struggle is over, the victory is won, it is enough. The NET has enough of that. So th those, those two words wedded together, whatever it means is that I'm done here, we're moving on. And that's exactly what he says with the imperative in verse 42. Get up, get up, let us be going. Let us be going. Be behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. When he says the hour has come and the Son of Man is being betrayed, those are parallel statements. Obviously, they're synonymous. The second clarifies the first. Notice this is the first, this is the first time that Jesus speaks of betrayal in the present tense. Remember, he's predicted several times he will be betrayed. The Son of Man will be delivered over, will be delivered over again and again and again. It's come. This is it. This is where it happens. The Son of Man is, present tense, being betrayed. So he says, rise up. He knew that this is Satan's hour, that he's being delivered over by God into the realm of Satan. Romans 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us? all things. Rise up. Let us go. I'm in full control with what's going on, and I am ready to meet my destiny. Out of love for you disciples, out of love for all of God's people, I'm willing to go forward now. I'm resolute about going forward. In fact, he doesn't say, rise up and let us go. I hear them coming from this way. Let's go that way. No, he goes directly towards them to meet them along the way. He's ready to confront them. Well, let's read verses 43 to 52. Immediately, while he was still speaking, notice that, instantly, immediately, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he, was, he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? as you would against a robber. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all fled him, and they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. And he pulled free on the linen sheet of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Well, couple things here. It's sort of like Jesus says, rise up, let us go. Picture a drum roll, and it's immediately, there they are. 
They, they meet on the road. He is betrayed. The crowd of thugs with clubs and lanterns and swords and all of that is really faceless. We're not told who those are. In fact, in this account, there's only two names mentioned, Jesus and Judas. There's a reference to all of them fleeing, of course, speaking of the disciples. But the crowd is faceless. From verse 43 and on, Jesus appears with something totally different than what he's appeared in the gospel so far. He's been a healer. He's been a great teacher. He's he's instructed the disciples. But from here on, he is a condemned criminal, arrested. He will be tried. He will be sentenced to death and will be killed and will be buried. But we know that he, of course, rose from the dead. Well, it says here that the crowds, the crowd that came were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Those three bodies would make up the Sanhedrin, which would be the Jewish court. They're the ones that have conspired and, and have already talked about how we, he's a threat to us. We've got to do something about this. There's also evidence from John's Gospel, if you were paying attention when we read John 18, that there was a Roman military involved in the arrest. It says in verse 3 of John 18, Judas, then having received the Roman cohort with officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with torches and weapons. Now a cohort was one-tenth of a legion or about 600 soldiers. Isn't that amazing? He he must have really posed a threat for them to send that many to go and to seize him. By the way, the, the, the key word in this whole section is the word seize. It occurs several, four times just in this text as he is seized. Of course, it tells us Judas, we pointed this out last week, Judas, one of the twelve that he, to indicate and to remind us that this was indeed one of Jesus' closest companions that he was being betrayed. The signal, um, it's a sign previously agreed on, and here it's a, it's a betrayal with a kiss. Now what's interesting in John's account, as Deepu is reading, where it says that they're asking, and he said, who, it is I, right? And they all drew back, they all fell. Um, that's, that's very interesting. Of course, they get back up and ask again, and um, he says, let them go. Of course, the, slave, the high priest, uh, slave's ear is cut off and, and uh, so forth. Tradition says that, that that would be Peter, although here it just says, one who stood by. So look at verse 50, very short verse. And they all left him and fled. Remember we talked about looking at that word all during the Lord's table? They all drank from it. In the cup, they all drank from it. Then later, he says, you will all fall away in verse 29. And then they all, in verse 31, they all were saying that they would die for him and not deny him. And then in verse 50, they all fled from him. Jesus' words being true. Verse 51 and 52 occur only in Mark. It's the first recorded streaker in history. Um, here, and, and it's, it's kind of unusually placed here, and I'm quite frankly not sure the significance of this, uh, but um, we know that Mark's getting his information from Peter, 
and maybe this is Mark's way of saying that he was in the story or something. There was some that would speculate. Um, one commentator said that, that the idea of this naked man has been clothed with much speculation, and I think it has been, but we'll just leave it at that. Let's, uh, let's bring our time to a close with some application. What do we learn about the character of Jesus? What do we learn about him? We see a perfect submission to the Father. We see a wholehearted obedience to his Father. We see the selfless nature of Jesus Christ to rescue his people. The concern that he has three times for the disciples to go back. Could you watch? Could you watch? He's concerned for them. It's a picture of his deep love that he has for the church. That he would give his life. So intense was this agony that he had that he was sweating as it were drops of blood. Jesus displayed to those three sleeping, backsliding, slumbering disciples his great love for them. We need to beware of spiritual lethargy, of slumbering, not watching, not being on the alert. We must be on the alert. Isn't that how the Olivet Discourse ended? Take heed, keep on the alert in regards to the second coming. Be on the alert, watch. Four times in there. We're exhorted to that. We need to be those that are alert. Have you ever been in a place where you know that you have been slumbering spiritually? And you hear the devil's voice telling you, you can't go and confess that to God. Are you serious? This is the 20th time. He won't listen to you. He won't forgive you. We need to plug our ears, not listen to the devil's voice, and go to Jesus Christ. My dear brother and sister, go to Gethsemane. Go and see a concerned Savior for you, concerned about your weaknesses, concerned about your flesh being weak, one that that understands and sympathizes like no other. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's available to minister to weary pilgrims at any part of their pilgrimage. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, come and look into the garden. Look at the drops of blood. Look at His atoning sacrifice on the cross. His sinless blood being spilt for who? For sinners who deserve wrath. But He stood in our place as a substitute. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows that these men, deep down, were solid. I mean, they would go on to turn the world upside down. He knew that. But he also saw their weaknesses, just like he sees your weaknesses and my weaknesses. We have a Savior that understands. And that's why we're told to boldly go to the throne of grace that we might receive grace in time of need and help in time of need. He sees your deepest desire, Christian, if you're here today. And sometimes in the midst of our spiritual lethargy, we need to hear that gentle rebuke from King Jesus to wake up and watch and pay attention. May the Lord strengthen us as we marvel 
with the depth of God's love for us revealed in the agony of His Savior, our Savior in the garden. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for a glimpse behind the scenes, as it were, to be able to see such an amazing picture of Your Son's agony before His death. Lord, we thank You that You have recorded this in Scripture. Lord, we thank You that it is honest. It's not candy-coated. He's distressed to the point of death and trembling with horror and troubled. But Lord, I thank You for the love and devotion that Jesus Christ had to You to fulfill His mission, Lord. Help us to be those that are thankful for this. Lord, help us to know that we have a glorious Savior and we have a precious Gospel. And Lord, may we not keep this treasure in earthen vessels, but may we share this good news with a lost and dying world. Lord, we thank You for meeting with us. Bless the rest of our worship, we ask. Amen.